Christ. He announced the arrival of Jesus Christ. We also recognize that John's parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias, because of their age, they were the unlikeliest of candidates to be used by God. And in our passage today, we'll see that God uses one of the most improbable locations to announce the birth of his son and the reign of an eternal kingdom. I'll begin by reading our passage in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Listen to this. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You know, if people in the world today desired to establish an enduring kingdom, a long-lasting kingdom, a government, they'd probably first look to graduates of Harvard and, and Yale and Princeton or Columbia, a great, great institutions of learning. They would think, you know, we need someone who is likable, someone who's really intelligent and smart. You know, we, we think that people will follow those who are charismatic and intelligent, and normally they will. Or better yet, maybe a business tycoon, someone who's really great with money. They can amass a lot of wealth. Or maybe a military leader. If someone has, has served in the war and served successfully, perhaps we can trust him with building a government that will endure. These are the type of credentials that the world would look to in order to build an enduring kingdom, an enduring government that might last perhaps a few decades. If an unusually strong nation, a couple centuries. But where would God go to build an enduring kingdom? One that will endure forever. We get a hint from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Scripture reminds us there that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Rather than using resources that the world admires, that the world elevates, God generally chooses people and locations that are despised by society. They're commonly regarded dishonorable among the people. So to establish his kingdom, verse 26 tells us that God will be sending his angel. He did send that angel to a small town in Nazareth, which is in a northern territory of Israel called Galilee. Why? Why? Because maybe Galilee was really a great hot spot where there's a lot of wise, very rich, very intelligent and powerful people. No. No, God chooses Galilee because it was so despised by the wise and the powerful of that day. You know, during the Old Testament period, 
even the prophet Isaiah recognized that Israel really kind of detested this region to the north called Galilee. They called it Galilee of the Gentiles. That's a derogatory title. Anything with Gentiles in it was derogatory. And Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 refers to Galilee as a dark land with people who are dwelling in darkness. They walk in darkness. You know, Israel's view of Galilee, it was very low. The residents there, they were known for being quite lax on the dietary restrictions. Uh, Out of convenience, some would just eat the foods that were prohibited by the Mosaic law. They ate what they could find. They ate what they ate. The Galileans, they had a reputation of being quite pugnacious. They would easily be drawn into arguments. They were generally uneducated. And, And in fact, when Jesus was being scourged, when he was being beaten, His disciple Peter was identified as one of those people who was hanging out with this Jesus of Nazareth. And the people said to him, you know, surely you too are one of them, for even the way that you talk gives you away. Do you remember Peter's response? It tells us that Peter began to curse and to swear. I don't know that man. Peter cursed and he sweared. You can bet they probably said to themselves, yeah, he's one of those Galileans, all right. Galilee was considered bad, but Nazareth was kind of a type of an armpit in Galilee. The town isn't even ever mentioned in the Old Testament, which itself is in some ways ironic. Because we're told in Matthew 2, verse 23, that Jesus' parents had moved back to Galilee, back to Nazareth, to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Matthew says they came and lived in a city called Nazareth. They they moved back to Mary's hometown. Why? Well, Matthew tells us. It was so to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, shall be called a Nazarene. He was from Nazareth. The problem is Jesus was never referred to as a Nazarene or as being from Nazareth in any of the Old Testament prophets. Instead, do you remember what Jesus was referred to by the prophets? Or how he was referred? He was detested. He was rejected. He was despised. He was abhorred by the nations. He was spat on. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. There's actually good reason to speculate This term Nazarene, it was a colloquial label in that time that referred to someone kind of detested, kind of lowly. If so, it would explain Nathaniel's response, one of the disciples of Jesus when he was called. In John 1.45, Philip had told him, We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel replied, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then later Jesus saw Nathanael coming over the hill and Jesus himself declared, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus had seen him. He probably meant that Nathanael just saw it like a regular Israelite would see things. Nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. That the Christ would arise out of Nazareth and that he would invite a group of ragtag uneducated Galilean fishermen to follow him for the purpose of establishing an enduring kingdom just doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. 
It's foolishness in the eyes of the world, yet that's exactly how God works. So be, to begin, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, God sends the angel Gabriel to visit a young virgin girl. Her name is Mary. We're told that she is engaged to a man named Joseph. The angel tells her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29 tells us, Mary was very perplexed at this statement. And she kept pondering to herself, What kind of salutation is this? And Gabriel must have provided her a few moments to reflect on what he had called her because it says that Mary kept pondering the angel's salutation in her heart. We're told she's very perplexed. The Greek term means she was greatly agitated. She was irritated, greatly upset. She was troubled. Mary was troubled by the greeting as favored one. That, that same greeting can be translated a woman who is richly blessed, a favored one. And I can only think to imagine what Mary might have said to herself there in Nazareth as a young girl. A woman richly blessed? Have you seen where I live? Of all the places to be raised in Israel, the great places like Jerusalem and the other locations, I'm stuck here in Nazareth. So in verse 30, the angel Gabriel reassures her again, saying, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. We're going to discover later on in chapter 2 in a few weeks that this unplanned pregnancy is going to cause no small problem with her husband, Joseph soon-to-be husband. Mary wasn't merely engaged to him. She has been legally contracted to marry him in what was known as a betrothal. Though most English translations use the term engaged, this is not at all like our culture views engagement in America where you, you know, try living together for a while to discover whether you're compatible or not. If you are, maybe there's something in our future. That's what we call Engagement. The Bible refers to it as something else, but I won't go there today. By comparison, the young girl Mary, she's been promised to Joseph through a betrothal. In Jewish, Jewish culture, a betrothal usually took place during a girl's early teen years, often lasted up to a year until the consummation which happened on the wedding night. They would not live together. The betrothed girl would remain living with her family as a virgin. Then after a period of time, there would be the marriage. She'd remain living with her family, actually. After a period of time, she would be married. The betrothal period, it was just as binding in ancient Israel as we view marriage today in America. Just as binding. There were only two things that could sever a betrothal in ancient Israel. One was justifiable divorce. Two, the death of a spouse. Those are the only two ways. The contract was so legally binding that in the event of a husband's death, the one that was, she was going to be married to, the betrothed girl, even though still a virgin, would be identified as a widow in Jewish culture. That's how binding this was. And according to Christ in Matthew 19.9, there was only one justifiable reason for divorce. What is it? 
fornication or sexual immorality. So when Mary returns, we'll see to Nazareth in in the next passage, uh, in the next two weeks. When she returns after visiting her relative Israel, uh, Elizabeth, excuse me, for a period of three months that she spends with Elizabeth, what's Joseph going to naturally think? She comes back pregnant after being gone three months to visit a relative. Well, he's going to believe that Mary was unfaithful. So we're going to see that he decides to divorce her or put her away quietly, which is going to require another visitation from this angel. That's getting ahead of ourselves. That's coming in the next few weeks. Mary will not be unfaithful. She will not. She is a virgin chosen by God to conceive his very own son. And this is to fulfill what God had said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, as we saw earlier in our scripture reading, where God promised David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when King David dies, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Notice Luke one twenty seven indicates that Joseph... Mary's soon-to-be husband, is a physical descendant of King David. In fact, when you look through Scripture, Mary is also a physical descendant of King David. So being born of a virgin, is Jesus a physical descendant of King David? Yes. Yes, he is a physical descendant of King David. And God promised to David's descendant in 2 Samuel 7.13 also... He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And Almighty God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So being conceived in the virgin by God's Holy Spirit, is Jesus also the Son of God? Yes. Yes. Who else has ever fulfilled these credentials? The answer is nobody. Nobody else. This is what theologians refer to as a a hypostatic union. It's a term never used of anyone else, only Christ. Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of Man at the same time. The angel explains to Mary in verse 31. Follow with me. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son... And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, meaning his ancestor King David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He's the Son of the Most High. He'll get the throne of his father David. There's never been and there never will be again anyone else like Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the Son of the Most High God. He reigns over a kingdom that will have no end. This kingdom is like no other. Because all other kingdoms that have been reigned by mere mortal men, they've come and they've gone. Christ is no mere man. He is the God-man. And today he reigns over his kingdom. And hang with me here just for a moment because I'm going to share something that's hard for us to comprehend, hard for us to accept, But Christ's kingdom is already, but it is not yet. It's already, but it's not yet. His reign has been initiated, but it isn't fully consummated. 
He is still building his kingdom. There are still people that are coming into his kingdom. And you might ask, well, how is that possible? The answer is, Christ currently reigns over his kingdom from a separate realm. A separate realm or kingdom. There is an earthly realm in which we live, every single one of us here. There is a heavenly realm from which he rules, Jesus Christ. We are naturally born into a sinful earthly kingdom. John 16, 11 says, ruled by Satan. That's where we're naturally born. And some of us have been supernaturally born by the Holy Spirit. We're inheriting Christ's kingdom, his heavenly kingdom. There are two realms, an earthly realm, a heavenly realm. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. There's an earthly realm, a physical realm. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There is a spiritual realm. And he says to Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. All of us have been born in the flesh. Not all are born of the spirit or born again. There exists two kingdoms. There is a temporal earthly kingdom that will have an end there is an eternal heavenly kingdom that will have no end in 1 Corinthians 15 49 Paul the apostle explains this distinction listen carefully please so also it is written the first man Adam referring back to the garden now the first man Adam became a living soul The last Adam, referring to Christ, the last man Adam became a life-giving spirit. The natural comes first, then the supernatural. The flesh and then the spirit. He continues, the first man is from the earth, referring to Adam. The second man is from heaven, referring to Christ. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we Christians will also bear the image of the heavenly. Do you see the distinction? The distinction. What Paul's saying, quite simply, is that we are all naturally born into the likeness of Adam, the reflection of Adam, the image of Adam. And to enter into the kingdom of God, we must be born again by the life giving Spirit of God, bearing the image of Christ. We must be born again. Everyone on the planet Earth suffers the same desperate condition. Every single person ever born onto Earth. We are naturally born bearing the image or the sinful, disobedient reflection of Adam. The earthly image. Adam the first man. God God warned Adam in the Garden of Eden, this would be in Genesis 2.17, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die, God told Adam. Adam, the first man, sinned. He disobeyed God. So he spiritually died. That means he was separated from God. Spiritual death. And his sin had devastating questions, uh, consequences to all of us. Devastating. All of us born into this earthly realm that Adam was born into. Romans 5.12 warns us, Therefore, just as through Adam sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
And death reigned, get that, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type. He was a representative of mankind when he sinned in the garden. He chose to sin and die. And you say, you know what, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe he was our representative. I don't think that. Bring someone to me. You show me who hasn't sinned and isn't going to die. No, we're all in this likeness. We're all going to eventually die. We have all sinned. You might even protest. You know, I wasn't there with Adam. I didn't make that choice for Adam. I didn't ask him to be my representative even. It doesn't matter. Romans 5, again, Scripture says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Even those who didn't do the exact same sin as him. So, so we sin differently. Doesn't matter. We still sin. We still die. In this earthly realm or kingdom, Scripture says that death reigns over us. Death reigns. But God provides a remedy through the offer of another realm, another kingdom, through a free gift, as a free gift. Romans continues in chapter 5, same chapter, 5.15. But the free gift is not like the transgression of Adam. For if by the transgression of the one man, Adam, many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, meaning Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation of the human race. That's what he's talking about, through Adam. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. He summarizes, For if by the one transgression of Adam death reigned, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. This is a, there's an earthly kingdom here ruled by Satan. Death reigns. In the heavenly kingdom ruled by Christ, life reigns. What a striking contrast. And, and what then is the Apostle Paul's conclusion? Fortunately, he tells us. So then, as through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through the one transgression, as our representative, condemnation to all men, Scripture says. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. It's offered to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. The one transgression of Adam resulted in the condemnation of all men, we are told in Scripture. Don't believe me? Again, show me someone who hasn't sinned and won't die. You don't have to sin to become sin. You're born sin. You're born a sinner. King David said in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. 
David isn't describing the sin of his mother there in Psalm 51. There's no sin of his mother. That's why in verse 7, by the way, he says, Purify me. Wash me, he says in Psalm 51. Not wash my mother. The Hebrew indicates that the sin was intrinsic to David. David is the subject of that verse. It is intrinsic to him, even at conception. This is why you don't have to teach your children to walk around the house and grab a toy from his brother and say, mine. You don't have to teach them that. You don't have to teach them to take things from one another. What we do is we have to teach them to not lie, steal, and cheat. We have to train them up to behave righteously. Why is that? Why do you not have to train them to take things that don't belong to them? They just naturally do it, right? They do. They lie, cheat, and steal naturally, and we love them. Folks, one of the biggest heresies of today, and you will see it all over the place, and this is a bad one, and you'll, you'll understand why in a moment. The heresy is, is that we're all just intrinsically, we're basically good people. If you sin, it's only because you're a, bad, a product of a bad environment or perhaps you made some poor choices in life. That's what people are told. Uh, the deceiving world will tell you, you know, sin isn't something you intrinsically are. It's something you learn somewhere along the way. Unfortunately, you stumbled across it. What that lie does is it shifts the blame of sin from you and it places it on the environment. You see how you're shedding responsibility when you think that way? It's not me. It's how I was raised. That was the problem. There's really nothing in me that needs to be saved. It's just a bad environment I was raised in. That's why we have prisons full of people that are innocent. Ask anyone in prison. I haven't been there myself, but I have visited there. It's not my fault. It's not me. I, I, I'm innocent. Or, you know, I had an absent parent. They didn't teach me not to do that. And I came from a bad school system or the neighborhood that I grew up in. It's never the individual. It's always their environment. That's a lie from Satan. The problem isn't our environment. The problem is us. We're the problem. We're born dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says to Christians, he's ta- Paul's talking to Christians now, and you were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and sins. We're looking past tense. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, that are, those are the ones that hadn't come to Christ yet, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. No exceptions here. Even as the rest, everyone has got this problem. You and I are in the same boat, by, by nature, children of wrath. Sin is not a learned behavior, it's our natural behavior. Our problem is that we're born citizens of an earthly realm where Satan reigns as ruler. We're born citizens of Satan's kingdom. 
the earthly kingdom. That's really bad news. And the reason it's bad news is because it's not a permanent kingdom. It's a very temporal kingdom, as a matter of fact. Earth is a temporary kingdom. It's immersed in sin. It's going to suffer the wrath of God in judgment. Don't believe me? Turn on the evening news. God is going to judge this realm, and it deserves it. And all the citizens of of Satan's kingdom, they're going to be tossed, we are told, into the lake of fire. That's the citizens of the earthly realm. You might be saying to yourself, that ain't good news. No, it's not good news. We each desperately need something different. We each desperately need to become citizens of a new kingdom. A new realm, one that has no end, one that isn't going to be judged by God. We need to be ruled by a new king who will reign forever. We need to change kingdoms. Does that make sense? Is that possible, you ask? Absolutely, that is possible. Your citizenship can be transferred today. That's a lot quicker than what the Immigration and Naturalization Service can do for you. How does that happen? How do you change kingdoms? Folks, that's the good news of the resurrection right there. It's good news. I hope you've already acknowledged in your heart that when we're born into this world, we have both a citizenship problem, we have also a sin problem. If you deny you have a sin problem, honestly, the Bible has no good news for you today. If you just can't accept that you have a sin problem. But if you are troubled by your sin, it indicates the Holy Spirit is probably working in your life. And this is the same Holy Spirit, by the way, that causes people to be born again. Remember Jesus said, you must be born again? Jesus told the apostles in John 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me, that's the earthly realm, and concerning Righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This kingdom, not a good place to be. Already been judged. It's just buying time right now. If you are convicted in your heart that the judgment of a holy and righteous God is coming upon this disobedient and sinful realm, it's a good indication that the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, working in your life. It's a good indication, actually, if you're not saved, that he's ready to transfer you between kingdoms. God sent his son into the world to save us from our sins. Jesus wasn't born into the sinful, natural Adam as we were. Our representative, our type, Adam. Jesus was conceived in a virgin through the Holy Spirit and has the nature of his father. God in heaven. Jesus' nature is divine. He is holy. He is divine. Jesus is not of this realm. And he never sinned. He instead lived a perfect sinless life that we have not. Very simply, Christ is the new type of representative. Jesus was born into divine royalty. His birthright is king of another realm that will, where he'll reign forever. The angel told Mary, he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give 
uh, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever, and his kingdom will have no end. No end. In John 18, Pontius Pilate asked Christ as, as Christ was facing crucifixion, So you are a king? Remember when he asked that? And Jesus, Jesus answered saying, You say correctly I am a king. For this reason I have been born. And for this reason I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus is a king. He has the birthright of a king. A divine birthright. And he also tells Pilate in John 18 in that same passage, but my kingdom is not of this realm. Right? It's a different realm, a different kingdom, a different authority. Christ's kingdom is of a different spiritual realm. It's a realm not reigned by death. It is a realm reign, uh, reign of life. Well, Satan reigns over this, this realm of death that we all live in right now. As Just as you were born a citizen of Satan's kingdom, you must also be reborn to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Truly, I say to you, you must be born again. That is the spiritual rebirth given when bowing down to the worship of Christ the King. You must be born again. You're a new king. You, you might ask, what must I do to be saved? I'm glad you asked that. In Acts 16.31, we're told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved from this realm. But, but what shall I believe about him, you might ask. You must believe the gospel. What is the gospel, you might be wondering, in your mind? I'll show you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll spend the last few moments there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because I'd like you to see what the gospel is, what the good news is. First Corinthians 15 verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul explaining the gospel that we call the good news. Now I make known to you, brethren... The gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, number one, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, number two, and number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5, and then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. More than 500 people at once. Most of whom still remain until now. He say most of these people are still alive today. You can talk to them. But some have fallen asleep. That, that means they've passed away. Nice way of saying they've died. And he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Jesus Christ appeared. The good news is, is that Christ, being divine, lived that perfect sinless life that we have not. He offered to take the punishment for our sins, your and my sins, on the cross, and he offered to die in your place. He gave that offer. He not only died, he was resurrected from the dead. Drop down with me to verse 12. Pastor Weiler read part of this earlier. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, that's why we're celebrating today, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He's chastising them here. 
But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It means you believed a lie is what he's saying. If Christ hasn't raised from the grave... Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. As Pastor Weiler said earlier, do you see how important the resurrection here is? Ask Christians, someone tells you they're a Christian, and you ask them, do you believe in an empty grave and a resurrection? Oh, I don't know if I go along with that. How can you be a Christian? Then also those who've fallen asleep, meaning passed away in, in Christ, have perished if they believe that. I mean, it's a deal breaker. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. If this is it. Continue in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, meaning the first one that happened to, of those who are asleep or have died. For since by a man came death, Adam. See how he goes back to the same theme again? For since by a man came death, Adam, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. That is Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also all who are in Christ, meaning believe in Christ, also in Christ, the many will be made alive through Christ. But each in his own order, he says, Christ the first fruits. Again, that indicates he's first in the resurrection. After those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. What is the end? He says when, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. He wins. The last enemy, it says, that will be abolished is death. Christ is going to put all enemies under his feet. His kingdom is the reign that will have no end. To escape the final judgment of the earthly realm, you have to be transferred between kingdoms through faith. That's the bottom line. You have to place your faith in Christ. Romans 10.9 assures you that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. When you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus as King, as your Lord, God the Father transfers your citizenship. You get a new visa, new passport, brand new, resident of another kingdom. Colossians 1.13 puts it this way, For he, meaning God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what you get in the new kingdom. That new passport we get being part of Christ's kingdom. You ever been to a foreign country and you got your American passport or whatever country you are in origin from? And you may be walking through that kingdom. You may be experiencing some of the horrors of that realm, right? But you're a resident of the United States. It is the same when you're transferred by kingdom in Christ. 
You become a citizen. You've been transferred. Paul said in the past tense, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You've got your new passport, but you're still going to tread through this world. But you're a citizen of heaven through faith. John 3.16. Here's what we all need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There you go. Today is the day of salvation, folks. God offers you this free gift... He offers you eternal life that Christ purchased with his blood on the cross, which brings a new citizenship in a heavenly kingdom where Christ will reign forever. That's our deliverance. And that's the decision that sits before us, before you, if you've not trusted in Christ yet. This, folks, is biblical Christianity. It is. Two realms. One you're in that's not good. Another one that's going to last forever. Jesus Christ is God's Son. He came as our representative in human flesh. He was sinless. We haven't been. He died in our place. Paid a debt that we could not pay. He opened up a pathway to be transferred into his everlasting kingdom. That's what he's done. Scripture says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How do we know Christ did it? There's an empty tomb. Undisputable fact. Empty tomb, lots of witnesses. Hundreds of people saw him alive that first Sunday, that first day of his resurrection. Since then, millions have placed their faith in Christ. They got their citizenship now where he reigns and he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. He has a kingdom that will have no end. Will you be there? Will you be there? Let me pray for you.